The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We're working every day to apply scientific insights and methods to improve district policies and programs. Learn more at thelab.dc.gov. Welcome to the podcast at DC. This is a special episode where we have a live audience. We have City Administrator Rashad Young with us. Let's prove we're a live audience and also give a warm welcome of applause. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. City Administrator, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, David. And alas, you are finally in my hot seat yes. rather than the other way around. This is an interesting experience for me. (laughs) I want to start by asking about Rashad the man. Yes. And maybe even Rashad the boy. Take us back to your childhood. Paint a picture. What was your family like? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you live? Uh, Sure. So, well, first, I'm excited to be here. I'm glad that there's a live audience. Uh, This is kind of cool. This is my first podcast, so I'm pretty happy about that. Um, I'm originally from Dayton, Ohio. Uh, It's a city in southwest Ohio of about now 150,000 persons born and raised there. Uh, I have an older sister who was two years older than me. We grew up in a working class neighborhood. When I talk to people from D.C., I say it's much like a neighborhood that you might see in Ward 5 or Ward 7 uh, in the community that we grew up in. And I went to public schools uh, for K through 12. Uh, My father was a self-taught systems analyst and coder uh, and worked for the public school system there. My mother worked Uh, for a factory, um, the National Cash Register Corporation, NCR. It's a big deal in Dayton, um, Ohio. They are the inventors of the first cash register ever to be used uh, that has evolved to computers and POS systems and et cetera. Uh, But she worked at this factory for a long time um, in in Dayton. Neither of my parents had went to college and and had a college education. My sister was the first in our family to to go to college and then me to follow uh, her. So we had just a working class upbringing um, that many people, I think, can relate to and resonate with. So is there anything, as you kind of look back to your childhood, that was a early signal of how you were going to get pulled into government? You know, were you balancing the household budget at four or something like that? I wasn't balancing the household budget, but I always had um, this desire for service and and activity and sort of um, what I would now say is leadership at a young age. So I was the guy that would run for student council. I was the person who was in the optimist speech contest uh, at school. I was the one who uh, you know, was in honor society uh, and those kinds of things and just civically minded and active. I really didn't have a good understanding of what local government was or how it operated. Um, until I graduated from high school. And interestingly, uh, my, my sort of 
entrance into local government was somewhat happenstance. I, like many high school seniors, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for college, where I was going to go. I had applied to uh, three schools, Purdue University, the University of Cincinnati, and Case Western, primarily because they were all good engineering schools. University of Cincinnati, because my sister was there and is an engineer today, and she was an engineering major. Uh, and so I had this guidance counselor pull me out of class one day and say, like, you should, we have these folks here from the University of Dayton, you should talk to them. Now, University of Dayton is a private Catholic Marianist school in Dayton, Ohio. It's about 10,000 undergrads. I had zero interest in UD because I did not, for me, like going to college was getting out of Dayton, out of my parents' house, being somewhere not far, but out, right? And so... I talked to these re recruiters uh, about this program at the University of Dayton, and it offered a full-ride scholarship to UD for undergrad and a four-year internship with the city of Dayton. Uh, the scholarship had been around at that time for about 15 years. We just celebrated the 30-year anniversary of the W.S. McIntosh Leadership Memorial, not to be confused with the computer, has nothing to do with that. Uh, but there is a civil rights leader uh, that was in Dayton named W.S. McIntosh, uh, who in the 60s was uh, the Martin Luther King of Dayton, Ohio. And he agitated and fought for equal access and equal opportunity uh, for African Americans in uh, private work life and in public service. And so he died um, in, I think, 1971. Uh, and then the university named a scholarship in his honor. And for every year, uh, for 30 years, there is one individual from the city of Dayton who gets this scholarship and works four years for the city of Dayton and has a full ride to the University of Dayton. So they told me about the scholarship. I applied. I got it, and so I went to UD, and that was my first entrance into local government and my first concept and understanding of what government does. And you did a bachelor's and then a master's in business administration. Yes. Was that strategic? Did you think you were going into government? Why that degree? So it, it, was, not, it, was, it was not strategic in, in the sense that I think uh, most people think about. I'm reading this book now called How Will You Measure, Measure Your Life?, by Clayton Christensen. And in the book, it talks about um, sort of how you evolve to your career um, interest and talks about having a deliberate strategy and an emergent strategy. And the difference between a deliberate strategy where you think you've sort of laid out the steps and what you're gonna do, but then opportunities arrive and, and circumstances change and you leverage those opportunities. When I started in undergrad, I started as a chemical engineering major for two reasons. One, my sister was a materials engineering major at the University of Cincinnati. Two, at that time, uh, chemical engineers were the highest paid undergraduate degree uh, that you could get. If you, if you had a chemical engineering degree, then the statistics showed you'd make the most money out of undergrad. So that's why I picked it. Um, except I'm not, I, I, I can't, I, I am spatially challenged. And, and uh, what I didn't know at the time is that, that science and math were not my best subjects, right? Uh, so I struggled there for uh, a year and a half, two years, and I switched my major to the School of Business because I was just interested in it. Um, and I had a couple friends that were in the business school. And so by happenstance, I got my undergraduate degree in business management. Once I uh, entered the School of Business, I really liked the curriculum. And so I really was at a decision point early in my career as to what my graduate degree would be in. 
And my thinking really just was, I'm not sure if this government thing is going to work out. I think the NBA will be more portable if I go back to the private sector. I really like the curriculum and discipline uh, that is in the School of Business, and so I got the MBA. Now, looking forward some 20 years later, uh, it was the absolute best choice for me for the work that I do now because those principles around organizational development, strategic management, strategic planning, and even how you think about revenues and profits, although we are not a profit-driven organization in the public sector, um, I use those skill sets and thinking every single day in the job that I do today. Uh, and so I really had uh, an emergent opportunity that developed into a strategy uh, that has supported me throughout my career. And part of the scholarship was working in government while the, you were in college? I, I worked part-time, maybe a little bit more uh, during the school year and full-time in the summer. And I've always been this bit of a workaholic because now I had a full-ride scholarship. Like everything was paid for, including my books, and I still worked for the city of Dayton and got paid for that. And my very first job ever uh, being paid was at McDonald's. And I still worked at McDonald's while I worked for the city, while I went to school full time, uh, through at least three years of my four years of undergraduate. The fourth year I didn't, I stopped the McDonald's gig and focused on uh, focused on uh, the, the city. I was quite popular on campus because I'd worked the weekends and I'd open the store usually on time, uh, depending on what I did Friday night, uh, at six in the morning, and I'd come home at three with like bags and bags of food. So all of my, and in fact, four of my very good friends uh, also I recruited to work with me there too, uh, but, but that was my story. I've worked um, incessantly uh, in, for the city and for this small fast food chain. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was small in the sense that that one store, uh, and, and, and then I went to school full time. Do you remember what your first government tasks were? Yes, my first task, well, it's interesting, let me back up. Um, when you start in this program, the first thing that, that the scholars did uh, is spent six weeks that summer before my freshman year in college, after my high school graduation, just learning the city. And so we were sent out in all of the operating departments. I did uh, ride-alongs with the police department in each division of police. I went with public works and did uh, cut grass and did wood chipping and filled potholes. I toured each division of the water utility, uh, the housing inspection, recreation, to get a sense of all of the services that the government provides, particularly the public-facing one, and how they operate it. Uh, and so I really actually rely on that information today. I remember like what people do and the method and why for picking up trash or for filling a pothole or for clearing trees and brush. In fact, my first experience clearing brush, I had this big log and I had to put it in the chipper and I don't think I heard the safety information. So when I put it in there, there was like a whip of this log that smacked me like five feet across um, the, the field we were in, and so now if I went out today, I would know how to do that successfully. Uh, but that's what I did the first six weeks, and I was assigned uh, to the director of community affairs uh, for the city, who later became the deputy city manager and has been a lifelong mentor for me even to this day. Uh, I was assigned to his office, 
and he was managing a community grants program that provided arts funding to local nonprofits for the city of Dayton. And my first professional experience with him was managing that grants program and tabulating the scores and uh, accounting for the money and the resources that got dispersed. That's the first thing I did in government. And you ultimately became the city manager I did. Um, when, when did that happen, and when did you know you wanted to be a city manager? So I, th- I decided my junior year in uh, college that I wanted to make um, public service my career. And I had worked for the city manager's office uh, that entire time. And I had this little thing about liking to be in charge. And so I decided then, if I want to work in government, like, I want to run this place uh, then. Um, and by that time, my boss had been promoted and was the number two person in the city. And so I really got this very broad and high-level view and perspective about what it meant to run uh, a city and run an organization. And so... Um, I, you know, when I, and I've had a, a, um, an interesting career trajectory and, 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 and sort of movement. Uh, and I can tell you that when I became the city manager, uh, in Dayton, Ohio, which was, oh my gosh, uh, uh, it was right after, it was maybe 2005 or so, uh, where I became the city manager in Dayton. Um, it was... Um, really the highlight of my professional career. Uh, Because when I thought back to this kid who didn't much know what local government did or how it operated, to how I got into local government in the name of this man who literally protested on the steps of City Hall for African Americans to have the opportunity to be in management and supervisory positions in government as opposed to those who could only hold jobs picking up trash, cutting grass, and doing maintenance work, which my grandfather did as a bridge maintenance worker in the city of Dayton when I was growing up, to be the person who was now the youngest and the first African-American male city manager in the history of the city of Dayton was really, really special, right? It was it was sort of um, storied, and I, I just felt this a lot of emotion about being – at that place at that time, having the opportunity to lead uh, that community and city, uh, given its past and given how I got introduced to local government and in the name of this man who fought so hard for people to have opportunities that I was now being able to take advantage of. So I have a lot of questions about the life of a city manager and minister, but I have one more personal question. Yes. Did I hear right that you ran for student council? I did. Did you win? I did. Would you run on? Um, I don't remember. High school? I don't remember. It was middle school. And I, I don't remember what I ran on, but I won. <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> so, city manager in Dayton, you've also been in similar roles in Alexandria, yes. Greensboro, yes. Cincinnati. Yes. Can you say a little bit just about the kind of career arc that you yeah, went through? Yeah, so, so interesting. You know, I have, I have two professional mentors. One was the person that I first mentioned uh, his name is William Gillespie. He was a deputy city manager. The second uh, is Valerie uh, Lemmy, who was the first African-American city manager ever in Dayton, um, both of whom I'm still very close to today. Uh, so Valerie was the city manager, hired me as her special assistant. Um, after two years in that role, and given I had already been there four years through undergrad, uh, I became the deputy director of IT. 
why I chose IT. Um, I just felt, and that was a very strategic move in my part. I wanted to supervise. I wanted to help lead an agency. And I knew that if I was going to continue to grow my career, I needed that supervisory and agency level experience. And so I picked an agency that I felt had a problem uh, that a solution that I could offer uh, in helping to manage its sort of administrative uh, work. So I became the deputy director there. And then we had a big change in Dayton, uh, a new election. And in the Dayton system, it's different from the DC system. When you have an election, it doesn't mean that the senior people leave. The city manager actually runs the city and works for the entire council, not just the mayor. Uh, and so we had an election, though. And that city manager said she thought it was time for her to go. She became the city manager in Cincinnati. Uh, I came back to the city manager's office to be the acting assistant city manager because there were lots of retirements. All of the deputies and assistants left, and they said, who knows how this place works? That kid over there knows. Let's bring him back. I got there for a year, and then she asked me to come to Cincinnati to be her assistant city manager, which at the time, and now that I'm a city manager, I'm not sure that I would take what I perceive to be the same risk. I was 25 years old uh, and hired as the assistant city manager of a 300,000-person 300, 300, city in a 6,000-person workforce. Some people thought that she was like crazy to do that. Uh, and I stayed in Cincinnati and worked well there, and then the opportunity came to come back to Dayton. Uh, and I came back to Dayton because I thought that um, over time, I that would be my best opportunity to be a city manager in the city I grew up in. So I went back to Dayton as the assistant city manager and director of human resources. And the boss at the time, was, which is a different city manager, said, I'll be here four years, four more years. He had left the county, retired from the county, came to the city and was working his second career and he left in a year and so the council said who should be the interim city manager well let's give it to Rashad and I said I'm not going to apply for the job it'd be a great experience for me to be interim I don't want to be the city manager I'm, I'm not ready I won't apply I was in the job for 10 months they did a recruitment they offered the job to a candidate from Iowa he accepted two weeks later he declined they were back to square one the council and the community said, this guy has been doing it for 10 months. He's from here. Like, we should give him a chance. And then I became the city manager in Dayton. Um, I wasn't, not to Greensboro, I really wasn't looking for that job. Um, I sort of applied because it was a bigger city. It was in North Carolina. Let me see what happens. I ended up getting that job. Um, my, his, my time in Alexandria, uh, the rec we had done in Greensboro this um, ad that highlighted all the great things that were happening in Greensboro, and we put it in the front seat pocket of U.S. Airway flights flying out of Piedmont Triad Airport in Greensboro. So the recruiter that had been hired for Greensboro is flying, looks at this ad, and is like, oh, this seems like a great city. Let me call the guy that runs this city and get him to apply for this as a pool, as a candidate for Alexandria. So he called and said, you want to, I got this job, I'm not interested. He called again. Let me talk to you about this job. I'm not interested. So the third time, I'm like, okay, tell me, give me the spiel. And I said, wow, that, that sounds interesting. Um, so I said to my wife, let's just drive to Alexandria and just, like, you know, look around. Like, I'm not going to really apply for the job, but, but let's just see it. So I convinced her to drive to Alexandria, and then on the drive back, well, let me just apply and see what happens. So I apply, I get the job, and I come to Alexandria. 
never, and when I came to Alexandria, I said I will never work in D.C. Not because I didn't like D.C., but it's a different system. I'm a city manager. This is a strong mayor form of government. My entire career has been a city manager form of government, so D.C. is not for me. I'm not doing that. Uh, so I work in Alexandria, and I get this call um, randomly from uh, this guy named, who I now know is named Bo, who was the campaign manager for uh, Muriel Bowser. And he says, "Hi, this is Bo Sheffield. I'm working on the uh, the would, would you? I'm working on the Bowser campaign. Would you have a time for a phone call with the mayor elect?" Okay. <laughs> Hi, this is Muriel. <laughs> um, building up a team. Want to know if you're interested? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if I'm interested. Well, let's just have a conversation. Had a conversation. This part of the story is in dispute. Four interviews later, she says it was not four. It was four interviews later. Um, <laughs> She offers me the job as city administrator. I accept. I'm in D.C. So what finally convinced you then? You said a minute ago that you didn't want to come to D.C. Um, initially. You know, once I talked with her and understood her vision and, her in, and, and got a sense of her energy and passion for what she wanted to do in this community and thought about what D.C. represented for me professionally, um, an opportunity. I had managed a city, two cities, uh, managed a city that also had county functions. And here I had the opportunity to manage a very large organization that not only had the city functions, but the county, uh, the state functions, and the school functions all wrapped in one, I thought was uh, just a professional opportunity for me to grow and develop and push myself uh, to learn things that I had not yet been directly involved or responsible for uh, and do it on a stage that has been the largest stage that you could imagine, which is running the nation's capital. Uh, and so that, that, that idea and that opportunity to really grow and push myself professionally uh, and work with a person whose vision and values that I believed in and who I thought was in it for the right reason and wanting to do the right thing to make her hometown the best city in the world uh, convinced me to move after I had just bought a house the year prior. Uh, but to <laughs> sell my house, move my family yet again uh, to the District of Columbia. So the scope of responsibility here really is huge. As you said, city, county, state functions and all the activities that go under it, a workforce of 35,000 employees, yes. $14 billion budget. It's a lot. It's a lot. How do you kind of orient yourself to what you think of as your core functions and sort of approach to the office? Yeah, so my job really is to, and I say this, I've said this in interviews before and I've said this to the mayor, that I think of the role as the city administrator, um, in part because I also played saxophone and was in the or orchestra and jazz band as a kid. So I had this music orientation. And I said the job of a city manager or a city administrator is really that of a conductor, right? And if you think of the organization of the city as a symphony, there are all of these parts. There's the flute, the flutist, there's the woodwinds, the brass people, the percussion, and they all have a role to play. And the music is the best and the, the audience enjoys it the most when it can be integrated and to create this beautiful sound, right? And so my analogy to this work is my job uh, is to take all the different 
parts, all the instruments. Uh, make sure that they're at the right tempo, that they're synchronized, uh, that the harmony comes when it's supposed to come, right? That, that the trumpet and the brass don't overtake the woodwinds, that it's all in synergy and to create this beautiful music. So my job is to coordinate, is to integrate, is to figure out how these pieces and parts come together to make a whole that delivers on the priorities and the vision uh, that we are directed. And I get that direction from the mayor. So my job is to take her idea and vision and create the music with all the parts and the pieces that are is our organization. As a sidebar, have we had you play the saxophone? You don't want me to play now. You don't want me to play now. You don't want me to play now. It's been it's been a little. I was really good back then. <laughs> so take me take us into a a typical day. Sure. Just hour to hour even. What is your life so like? So what happens usually in the morning, I, I'm, usually, I'm the first one to wake up in my house. I have, I'm married and have two kids. I have a nine-year-old son and an 11-year-old son. So I wake up um, between 6 and 6.30. Uh, the first thing I do is check my phone because I need to see what happened overnight, uh, what alerts I got from HCMA, what alerts I got from MPD, from FEMS. Um, if to make sure I didn't miss anything that happened critically uh, overnight. So, for example, I was on vacation last week visiting my sister at 2 o'clock in the morning. I get a call from the fire chief. We have a two-alarm fire. I'm on the way. I'll let you know if it's if we can't if if there's uh, you know really significant injuries or if the fire spreads. Thank you, chief. And so I got to look to see if I missed a call because I actually do sleep. Um, and, and then sort of what the rundown of the day was and do I need to do anything or get people moving or is it something I need to tell the mayor first thing in the morning? Um, and so once I do that, I get I usually try when everything works as it should. Um, I, I when my kids have school since summer break, this doesn't apply. I get the kids up and I fix them breakfast like that is my thing to fix the kids breakfast every day because some days I don't see them when, until they go to bed or they're in the bed when I get home. So that's my time with them in the morning. Get them up, fix breakfast, start the day off. Uh, and then I try to be out of the house by like 10 after 7 because if everything works as I want it to, I come here to work out in the morning. Um, I try to work out uh, three or four times a week. Um, and so I get here, beat the traffic, work out, change, and then start my day, which usually is on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, it is either a staff meeting with the mayor's senior team or my senior team. Monday and Friday is the mayor. Wednesday is my senior team, which includes the deputy mayors. Um, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I usually have, if there's any coffees or breakfast meetings that I have to do, I do those. I be average between six and eight meetings a day um, on various issues. I have one-on-ones with um, some agency heads who have high-profile projects or there are projects or initiatives that we're working or moving, or we may have a capstat where we bring 15 people in to talk about a specific issue. Um, I text all day. Um, so the mayor is an active communicator, and so I probably have eight different text threads going uh, either with her or with senior staff or the deputy mayors about different things that happen throughout the day. Finish the day, um, depending on the night, um, I'd say between seven and nine, depending on what's occurring. Um, if it's on the early side, I get home, try to have dinner with my family. My kids go to bed during the school year around nine. Um, and then around 10, I'm reading. 
And so I cannot read during the day and I get briefings and memos and information from 70 agencies, right, that can send them. Uh, I've got to go through that. I do it at night, catch up on email at night, go to bed, start all over again. Uh, and so that's that's my routine. Not every day during the work week will I have the ability to read. Um, usually on the weekends, I try to leave Saturday open. Sunday night, I'm reading again. I'm always reading Sunday night to catch up on my paperwork and getting ready for uh, Monday. My staff and uh, team uh, know that Sunday evening I'm going to start pinging about my schedule. I'm going to start sending – I have an electronic system to – capture all this stuff i'm gonna start sending back memos and briefing documents with questions and comments to get ready for my uh week on monday how does that workflow and sort of throughput of tasks compare to the prior government roles you've had i mean you've done you've been doing this for a while is there sort of reflections as you look across time uh the the hose is bigger in dc um because there are more things uh to do uh so for example but, but the issue, the pace is, is similar. And so this, the way that I've approached this schedule from city to city has been quite similar. Um, the volume is higher here in, in the district. Uh, you know, for example, in Alexandria, I didn't have to worry about whether schools are going to open or close. It wasn't my issue. The superintendent and the school board decided. I'd want to know, but I, that wasn't my thing. Here... It's my thing. Like, I have to decide if schools are going to open or close. I have to talk to the chancellor and get the recommendation. I got to know, can our buses roll and go pick up our special needs kids? And then I got to call the mayor and convince her whether to open or close schools. And she does not close anything. Um, and so I, I'm talking to her and saying, this is what I think we should do. And then she's got to make that call, right? And so the volume is and the throughput is higher in D.C., the the way the schedule has worked has been quite similar. What do you think is one of the biggest misconceptions about the, the role or even the life of a city administrator? I don't know if there's a misconception as much as people don't know what it is. Um, and even as a city manager, I would say to people who didn't work in government, I'm the city manager, and they're like, oh, you're the city planner. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not the planner. Like the planner, we have planners. That's not me. <laughs> well, I'm what is a city manager. And I think even in this context, um, and especially in this system, because we are rightfully oriented to the mayor. The mayor is the CEO of this city. Um, and then our nomenclature is different here, right? So we have deputy mayors, and then we have this thing called the city administrator. So when people hear that, even in, in government, and unless they are you know, really – interested or have been here for a while, um, or this is public policy and government structure is their thing, they really don't understand what the city administrator is relative to other things in the organization. Um, and so I think the issue is not so much a misconception of what it is, but just I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know what that person does or that position does. And different mayors, I think, have um, used the city administrator in slightly different ways. So the things that I do and what I focus on are quite different than what Alan Liu did when he was the city administrator under Mayor Vince Gray, right? And so it is because we're in a strong mayor system, that role and how it operates uh, is a function of the personality and the desire of the mayor and how the mayor wants to run the government. 
Do you have a example or a story about a time things didn't go as you wanted and what you learned from that? Uh, there's, yeah, there's there's a lot of stories of things that didn't go well. Um, I, I remember um, an issue in Alexandria where we were working on the budget. Um, and, and folks, you know, who work in government and work in our government certainly know you get a mark. Agencies have to meet the number. You got to submit and tell us how you're going to get to the number. So we were particularly challenged with the fire department about how to get the fire department um, into the resource number we gave them. So the fire chief gave this recommendation uh, about how to change the deployment of where ladders and trucks are, are located. So we had a firehouse that was on the east side of the city that had both an engine and a ladder. An engine is usually the first response to a medic call. They are the EMTs. If there's an actual fire, that's where the hose is. They're putting the fire out. The ladder companies are the workhorse people. You got to do an entry. You got to climb up to a roof. That's what the ladder does. They typically don't do the EMT work. So engines get much more use than ladders typically because most of the calls in fire are EMS calls, not structure fires. So the chief said, look, we have a firehouse that has an engine and a ladder. The ladder doesn't actually get deployed that much, and we have another firehouse uh, that is less than a mile away that provides overlapping coverage. On the west side of the city, um, we are constantly in a situation with mutual aid, and we don't have the resources up there. Let's move the ladder company to the west and keep the engine located in the fire. No closure of houses, no brownouts um, of uh, really of any sort. The data shows we've got the right coverage. We can still respond within our threshold. It's still safe to do, but I don't have to hire more people to staff the west side if we make this change. Sounds great to me, right? So that's what we're going to do. That was my recommendation. Community went off not having it. And in Alexandria, um, the populace is extremely sophisticated. So they came to uh, budget hearings with their own charts, their own data, their own maps to suggest that we were going to let people's houses burn down, um, that we were going to put people in jeopardy by making this change, despite what the data showed and the evidence showed. And so the council said to me, um, sort of off quietly and not in public view, look, we get it. This is a, a good decision. It's rational. We understand it, but we're not doing it um, because the pressure is too great. We're just going to figure something else out. We're not making that move. I understand why you did it. We actually agree that it makes the most sense not doing it. And so, you know, we lost that battle and we had to figure out something else. Uh, we had to figure out something else to do. And the lesson learned uh, for me um, is that, you know, when you're dealing with the community on such a sensitive issue, um, and this is true everywhere today, I think it's the time that we're in because of the access to information, et cetera. You can't just give, you can't go to people and say, this is what you're going to do. You've got to have people who feel a part of the process, bought into the process, that you can bring them along in your thinking. But when you come ready-made and say, this is the decision, we're going this way, then people just close off. They, they couldn't hear us pass, we're taking this fire truck from you because they weren't involved in the deliberative process that got us to that decision. And so the lesson for me is that you can't, and in some issues, you really have to be very thoughtful about the manner in which you engage um, the people who are the beneficiaries or the perceived losers of something that you're trying to implement. 
So it's not just enough to have the data and evidence. It's a real no. kind of political art to no, even how you No, they can it. hear the data, and they didn't trust the evidence because what we came is we're doing this to you. They didn't hear, here's the problem we're trying to solve. Let's think about how to get there together. So the data didn't matter because the data was our data, and it was certainly, from their perspective, skewed for the result that we wanted. And so they, there was no trust there. Do you have an example of where this was done really right, to your mind? I, so another public safety example, when we were in Dayton, uh, when I was a city manager there, uh, Dayton's economics are quite different then and now from DC's. Uh, we were in a time where we were constantly cutting. We were losing jobs, cutting resources, budget, uh, because we were losing jobs, we were losing population, uh, and that trend had existed over a decade. So structurally, the economics of Dayton were quite different. And so here we were um, having to make some very difficult decisions about how we could balance the budget, provide services uh, to people without draconian cuts. And the thing that was driving our cost, as is the case in most cities, are labor costs and personnel costs. Dayton's a unionized, uh, Ohio was a unionized state, Dayton was a unionized city. Um, and so I had to, as the city manager, go back and ask for concessions from our unions on previously negotiated contracts that awarded them a raise. And so uh, in this case, it was the FOP, the police union. Uh, and I had a good relationship with the union president. And I was saying to him, look, this is our circumstance. These are the challenges that we have. Here are all the things that we have done to try to reduce costs. I cannot get there without reducing personnel costs. I've already taken back raises from non-represented employees. I need all the unions to give. I need to, I need to take your raise back. I need you to agree to not take your contractually negotiated raise. Um, and I'm, you know, whatever information you want, whatever you want to see, whatever you want to ask about other alternatives, I'm willing to have that conversation. You got a different way to do it, you can tell me the way to do it. And he said, you know what, you got to talk to my, my members about this. Um, so I'm going to schedule a special meeting on some evening at the union hall, and you got to come and tell these members that this is what they have to do. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, and the idea of going to their house um, to stand up in front of 100 police officers to say, you're not getting 3%, you take zero um, on something that, you know, you've negotiated is not, I mean, it's a big deal. So I went, I stood up on stage for two hours, I pled the case, I answered every question um, that they had. I, I was not gonna leave until everybody got everything out they wanted to say, that they wanted to ask. And they at, and gave me their suggestions and I would talk about what we could look at and what we couldn't look at. And at the end of the day, that union agreed to take a zero um, and voluntarily give up their raise for the betterment of the city and for the betterment of their employees and their workforce. And I could not have done that if I had started with, I'm gonna do this and you're just gonna take it. It had to be, let's walk through this process to get you comfortable with my thinking, for you to exhaust all of your ideas about how we solve this and that we are in this together. Uh, and they voluntarily agreed to give up their race. It's common, particularly nowadays, to hear that government should be run like a, like a business. Yeah. I'm curious to what extent you think government is or is not like a private enterprise. 
So I, you know, I said earlier that that I feel really fortunate um, to have the academic background that I have because I think it pays dividends to me every day when I try to do the job uh, uh, that I do. Certainly, as a government, um, we don't have the same. Um, motivation and principal objective as a private enterprise, which is to maximize shareholder, shareholder or owner revenue. We don't make decisions based upon what the profit or return is. That's not our objective. Our objective is to deliver a service, uh, provide things that the residents and community expect, um, usually because there isn't a private sector comparator that can do it or will do it, um, uh, arguably as efficiently as we can do it. Uh, so our objective is different um, in that regard. But the way you manage an organization, the way you think about how you organize divisions and functions uh, to leverage um, the best outcome that you want is very similar between a private enterprise and a public enterprise. And the way that I think about strategy, the way that I think about organizational development, the way that I think about how you create an organization that is consistently high performing, that leverages the talents of its most important resource, which is its human capital, our disciplines and thoughts and and, and, and sort of uh, the teaching that does come from business school uh, that I like to apply and bring uh, to this organization uh, each and every day. Um, I think that working in the public sector uh, to achieve consistently repeatable good results is harder, frankly, than in the private sector. Uh, because of the level of scrutiny that we have in the public sector, uh, because of the stakeholder interest and influence that exists uh, in the public sector. Um, in this book I read, uh, Good to Great, there is a public sector companion to the book that talks about how you apply the principles of high-performing organizations to public enterprises. And one of the, the key sort of um, distinguishing factors is that there often is not one center of power uh, in a public organization. In a private organization, whether you are privately held or a publicly traded company, there's a very formal power center that doesn't much move. It is your board of directors and your chairman and CEO. It's influenced by, by the, the investors, but it is run at that level. When the CEO says, we are doing this, that's what the organization does. This is our strategy. Whether it's executed well or not, it's a different thing. That's how it works. In our context, we have lots of center of power. We have the legislative branch who sets laws, who sets the conversation in the context, who has strong influence. We have the mayor who is the CEO, who runs the day-to-day, -day, who has a strong center of power. We have residents, we have advocacy groups, all of these people move, push, and influence how we operate. And it just isn't as simple as saying, well, the mayor said, because we are public, there's a forum for discussion, there's a forum for influence, and you can't, you can't move at the same pace and speed and decisiveness on the public side than as you can on the private side. And so those are some of the differences, but how you run an effective organization, uh, which is a lot of leadership theory and management theory that you get from a business sort of orientation, applies to both equally. So I have one more question, and then we'll open it up to the audience, which is that if you get approached by somebody who is thinking about a career 
in government, or maybe they're in government early on and thinking about how to grow it. What's the advice that you give to that individual? So what I say to folks is you got to go where your passion is. And if you don't know what your passion is, you have to try a lot of things to figure out what it is. Um, every experience is a teachable experience. And so if you have a good at work experience uh, and an assignment, that is fantastic because then you're learning what you like to do, what you're good at. If you have a terrible one, that's also fantastic because you learn what you don't want to do and where you're not strong. And what I tell people is, whatever. first you got to figure out what your thing is in this space, and then you got to go hard at it. Because I think the most successful people are the people who do the thing that they like the most, that they're the best at, where their gifts and talents can be laid out to help advance what they're trying to achieve. There's no sense in fitting a round peg in a square hole, right? And so if I were to have pursued engineering, I would be terrible at it. I would because that's not what I like to do. That's not what I'm good at. That's not where I get my creativity from, my inspiration from. Uh, so when I do, when you find the thing that you like, that you're good at, and you work hard at it, you're going to be better than other people at it because that's where your gift is. Uh, the second thing I tell people in career exploration is be thoughtful and strategic about what it is that you do. In my career, especially early on. Uh, because I had this flexibility too, which is important, um, I got to, I would find like, what's the problem in this organization? What's the issue that nobody wants to tackle that is broken and falling apart? And I would go to my boss and say, can I do that? And they would say, well, yeah, right? <laughs> that needs to be worked on and done. That's, that's sort of how I got to the IT department. It was broken. It was a fractured place. Um, there wasn't a lot of trust between sort of the central management in that agency. And I said, well, like, you all complain about this all the time. Why don't you let me go over there? Like, I can fix this. I, let me work on this. Well, all right, let's, let's give them a shot to go. And so for me, it developed capacity and skills um, and leadership uh, that, that I needed to have for my bosses. There was something less that they had to worry about because he said he has it, he's going to take it, and he's going to do it. And so for those kinds of of I took those opportunities to, to look at what needed to be done, and I asked or did and, and asked for permission later uh, and, and worked on it. The number I hear a lot from folks like, well, tell me what I should do. Like, what should I work on to grow my skills if I want to advance? You tell me. Like, what, are your, what do you want to do? What do? You have better vi- – Oftentimes, people who work in the organization and program areas and agencies have so much better visibility as to what's broken, what's needed, what isn't working well than I do. Like, you should come to me with 10 ideas. We should do this, 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 and this. It's easier for me to say, yes, go do that, than for me to think and try to create an opportunity for somebody else. And so I think people have to take ownership of their own career development and management and like go after things uh, that provide value to the organization that hit a sweet spot for the organization and that leverage the skills that they know they have. Let's open the floor now. And the way we're going to do this, if you walk into the center aisle, we have a mic, which you're going to have to use because we, again, we are on air. Please try to ask your question crisply just so we can share the time with the city administrator. Administrator Young, yes. Oh, thanks for coming out sure. and sharing your experiences. 
I had a question about meetings and trying to eliminate meetings in terms of making better decisions quickly and timely. Uh, there are organizations that adopt stand-up meetings, uh, agile meetings, zero meetings, and I've just heard you have a ton of meetings. I do. Yeah, so to what effect have you looked at technologies and solutions to make better data-driven decision-making with expert uh, advice or you know Delphi methods or panels so that you can just be focused on doing as opposed to attending meetings. Yeah, I really haven't figured that one out yet. Um, uh, and I hear uh, some of these companies and executives that you know have a 10-minute meeting or uh, the standing meetings. And, and it's funny, I meet, uh, we have a, a, a lot of standing meetings uh, with the mayor. And so um, on Mondays, the, the four direct reports to the mayor, it's me, the chief of staff, the senior advisor, uh, and the, the director of the mayor's office of legal counsel meet with the mayor. And so for one of the meetings, she said, we're going to stand um, and have this meeting because that will encourage us all to like get through our issues quickly. I think it worked. Uh, it, was, it seemed to be shorter than the other meetings. I have not adopted um, that strategy. Uh, so that, that is something that I could use some more help on, to how to be more efficient uh, with how we spend our time. Now, one thing I actually I will say that I won't do, usually, um, I will not, I resist strongly a meeting to prepare for the meeting. Like, I just, I, I just cannot do that. Um, so I, re I resist that pretty strongly. Hello. Hi. Um, thank you so much for addressing all of us. Sure. And I'd like to ask, if somebody had a good idea, and you bring it up to a somebody in the city and they say well that's a great idea but who's going to make it happen when th that comes to you and you hear the idea and how are you going to make it happen what happens next because i had that happened to me um, i'm trying to push forward for a five for a three-digit teen help hotline i had written to i guess the number that was in the online for you i'd written to kevin donahue I talked to several people, they all said it was a great idea, but how are you gonna make that happen? So I'm wondering what I should do next as opposed to just planting a bug in somebody's ear and not letting it, and it not happening. Um, I, I think the advice that I would give is to answer the question that was asked, how are you gonna make it happen? Um, and, and if you need help with how to make it happen, um, ask for that help, but I think the best um, and it goes back to this idea of ownership. If you have a great idea and there seems to be support and encouragement for it, um, then take the next step and sort of lay out the things of how to move it to the next level, right? And so is it, is it a work group that should be put together and laid out an implementation plan with some milestone dates? Um, is it figuring out that there are other resources that are needed, financial or otherwise? Um, sort of come, the thing that I will ask my team, um, and, and when I get requests or ideas from agencies that sound great, great, tell me what's next. Come back and tell me what we have to do next. Because all of us are busy, and Kevin has a thousand things to do. I have a thousand things to do. And if this is something that you know is good, and you're looking for the yes, and you get the yes, then keep going with it and keep pushing with it and be persistent about it. Um, you mentioned a few books that you've read that have affected the way you think and shaped your career. I was wondering what other books you recommend somebody who is interested in a career in local government. 
Oh gosh. Um, hmm. I, you know, I've read good to great, like five times. Um, I've read the companion public sector, uh, piece. Uh, I'm halfway through, uh, this book, how you will measure, uh, your life, uh, which is not only good for like career sort of thinking, but really like what is important for you in your life in terms of priorities and what trade-offs should you be thinking about between your career and family? Um, and so at the end of the day, I know you asked me for more books, but let me just, this is an important part of how we think about what we do. Um, at the end of the day, you know, we work, many of us um, have an, an inappropriate balance between work and life. Um, and having children for me gave me the perspective that if I were to step off this step today, which I hope is not going to be the case, and dropped dead, um, you know, they would have a city administrator uh, by the time business closed today. Like somebody would be in that spot, right? And the time that you lose uh, with your family and your kids uh, is time, and, and whatever that thing is that's important to you is time that you cannot get back. Uh, so that's um, important. Um, in terms of other books, um, I, I, I can't readily like rattle off titles. There's a four books on my nightstand. I have a problem with reading too because I start then I get busy, and then a week goes by, and I have to start over um, on the book. So there's like four books that I'm working through now whose titles I cannot remember. But maybe what we can do is just like put out the books later that I like to read and have read, and you can go there and see them. I hear that the podcast at DC is also a thought-provoking, compelling <laughs> program to listen to. I think we have time for one more question. Just going back to this kind of public sector, private sector discussion, I'm interested when you think about the city uh, providing a service or achieving a capability, something either new or something that we're thinking of changing, how do you think about when uh, the appropriate approach is to, in, you know, to build that capacity internal to the government, to, to, to hire people or to open an office or start a new department versus uh, getting that capability or that service from the private sector, going and, and procuring it and having someone either for-profit or non-profit provide it? I think there's a lot of factors that are involved in that. One is, I'll use a business term, speed to market, even though our market is not a market in the sense of the private side, how quickly do you need to or can you stand it up? Uh, sometimes when we want to do things really quickly, it is faster to go the private route than to build the capability uh, internally to do it. Uh, the second is where is the expertise housed and what is the cost of that expertise? So do we have people who have that kind of expertise already internally um, or is it something that is so uh, focused and um, expert that it is better and, and more efficient to go buy it. Uh, the third is the cost of the relative options, right? So what's the cost to, to go buy that externally versus building it internally? And you have to look at all of those pieces, and they're not all very cleanly uh, defined, but you have to look at those pieces, determine where those trades are, and then make the best strategic decision uh, based upon what your objective is, uh, the visibility of that objective. Uh, and the fourth thing I'd say is risk assumption. Uh, so sometimes it is better for us to, even if it is more expensive, to have that delivered externally because of the, the risk that it poses if it doesn't work well. And if we do it and own it and, and have the whatever the thing is internally done and it is a disaster, uh, it is 
you assume more responsibility and blame if you did it yourself as opposed to if you bought it externally. Uh, and so those are some of the factors that I think um, that you, you have to consider. One other thing that I wanted to say about this public-private dynamic, which is important, and risk made me think of it, is one of the challenges in public sector, I think, operating operations is our ability to be innovative and creative. And it really goes back to this issue of how we're organized and structured. Private companies can afford higher levels of risk uh, because the scrutiny and public eye is not on them in the same way as public organizations. So it takes more for us to be innovative and when you decide you want to be innovative, you necessarily accept more risk for innovation because you have to have a higher degree of tolerance of failure. Uh, and so it is hard for us as public agencies uh, to be consistently innovative and creative without also having a higher tolerance for risk and failure. Um, than, and that is a distinct difference between how we operate in public sector than what exists in the private side. City Administrator Rashad Young, thank you for joining the podcast thank at Thank you DC. for having me. The podcast at DC is brought to you by The Lab at DC, an applied research team in the executive office of the mayor of the District of Columbia. The show is hosted by David Yoakum and produced by Carissa Minnick. Check out our archive of conversations on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. <laughs>